Isaiah chapter 66 is the text, verses 1 and 2, that we have been in for the last uh, couple of Sundays, if you remember. And we have been working through a summer series titled, A Mission-Focused Church. A Mission-Focused Church. And as I've mentioned to you, this is a time for us to really refocus our attention on what really is our mission in this world as believers, both as individuals and collectively as a local church. It's very easy right now, I think, for us as Christians who oftentimes are zealous for the glory of God and the fact that His Word is being dishonored in this world, but it's also very easy for us as Christians to become very pessimistic and to become very negative about our culture and what we see around us. And to forget about the fact that not only are we called to experience zeal for the glory of God, but that zeal should then drive us to want to do something about it. To want to proclaim Christ and Him crucified to a world that desperately needs to hear about the hope of Jesus. Just as somebody shared the Gospel with you. So I want to remind us of that in this summer series so that we would sort of recalibrate and refocus and personally assess what they... Uh, an evaluation that is, that is a healthy kind of evaluation and healthy kind of introspection for us. That we would ask ourselves, am I really about this mission? Am I really living for the Great Commission? And so, that's why we've been working through this particular series, A Mission-Focused Church. Well, I'm sure that you have those memorable statements. Those significant statements that someone at some point in time in your Uh, journey in life have made to you. Maybe a parent, maybe a dear friend, maybe an acquaintance, or maybe you watched something or you read something. A memorable statement that someone made to you, someone special in your life. Maybe you have those statements in your heart. Back in 1993, when the Lord just saved me, the first man who ever discipled me, his name was Mark, once sat me down as we met regularly and said to me quite sternly, Kempis, Always stay teachable. I was just a baby believer. Always stay teachable, he said. And make sure that you are fighting for humility. He said, watch out for pride in the Christian life. Watch out for pride. And he had that, he was typically a very happy-go-lucky guy, but he had one of those stern faces, you know what I mean? So I knew that he was very serious about what he was saying. And then he expanded. He said, pride is sneaky campus. Pride is subtle. Pride is like bad breath. Everyone knows you have it except you. (laughs) Now you see why it was memorable for me as a young guy. (laughs) I was only 18 years old at the time or 17, I forget. I never forgot that one. So true, isn't it? So true. And each of us sitting in here today or watching on by live stream have to some extent or another struggled with sinful pride. Maybe today you're struggling with that. And oftentimes it's, it's hard, it's imperceptible, it's difficult for you to detect. So we need other people, first the Lord through His Word, and then other people to remind us of what we are not seeing in our lives. That's why it's good to be a part of body life and be in small groups so that you might have people speaking into your life and, and they can tell you about your, your blind spots that you have in the Christian life and vice versa, right? It's important that you be part of body life because each of us can struggle with Pride, the sin of pride. Thus, the importance of what we've been reflecting upon beginning uh, uh, last week, in particular with the sin of of pride, right? As you take notes here, and I hope that you're taking notes, 
We have a, an outline that we provide for your bullet and your, inside of your bulletin every Sunday morning, so take that out, right? And we provide those for you so that we would be doers of the Word, brethren, so that we would apply the Word. And then in the back of your outline, you actually have a personal reflection questions that you can use for just before the Lord individually or in group settings with your family, dads, as you lead your family, you can utilize these. And bring the truth to bear upon your family, and first of all, beginning with, your, with yourself. Make sure that you are doing that. So as you, you've been taking notes, we've already seen that if we're going to carry out our mission faithfully and effectively and fruitfully, we must have the right perspective. This begins with how we view God, and thus we must, this is the first point on your outline, daily contemplate the majesty of God. Daily contemplate the majesty of God. That was in verses 1 through 2a, if you remember. And this contemplation of the majesty of God then leads us to a right view of ourselves, to see ourselves accurately. And we emphasize the need, secondly on your outline, to diligently cultivate a heart of humility. To diligently cultivate a heart of humility. And that is in the middle of verse 2. And it's this latter second point that we've been camping out on for a couple of weeks, last week and now today, Well, we've been seeing that the appropriate response to the majesty and the greatness of God, brethren, is that we would have and cultivate a heart of humility. A heart of humility. Consequently, if you're struggling with sinful pride, then you need to return to the the Mount Rainier of the majesty of God. Amen? To the greatness of who God is. That's verse 1 and verse uh, 2, the first part of verse 2. This humility then shows itself in our lives in three specific ways. We began to look at this last week. I worded these three ways as questions for you so that we might prayerfully evaluate these before the Lord. Question number one was this. In the light of the majesty of God, I asked you, do you have a proper view of yourself? That's question number one. Do you have an accurate view of yourself? In the middle of verse 2, if you notice, of Isaiah 66, God says, but to this one I will look to him or her who is humble. To him who is humble. This has to do with the way that you view yourself. It literally refers to a a lowly mindset concerning yourself that really drives you to, to understand and recognize your state of neediness. Your state of dependence before the Lord. It's a mindset of lowliness in the light of who God is. And then we are brought very low, right? We said this, that it's not a false sense of humility. This woe is me, poor is me kind of an attitude. It's not that as much as it is a, a recognition that apart from God, we can't do anything, and thus we need to walk in humble dependence upon the Lord in everything that we do, right? And so in relation to ourselves, we must cultivate a proper view of ourselves. Do you have a right view of yourself in the light of the majesty of God? Second question that we asked Are you humbly contrite over your sin? Are you humbly contrite over your sin? Look in the middle of verse 2 again. But to this one I will look to Him who is humble, and here it is, and contrite of spirit. And contrite of spirit. Contriteness has to do with our our relationship to our sin. How we relate to our sin now as believers. And it means many things, but it means also that we take our sin, brethren, seriously. That even though as believers we've been reconciled to God, that there's this ongoing cultivating of humility before the Lord, specifically with regard to our sin. 
Note in verse 2 that this contriteness is of spirit, right? It's of spirit, which means that you are addressing your sin, listen, at the level of the inner recesses of your heart. This doesn't have anything to do with what other people see on the outside. That matters to some extent, right? But we can all put on a facade. We can all put on a show. But God sees what is going on on the inside. He says, cultivate this contriteness of spirit in the inner recesses of who you are. This is cultivated in the place where no one else sees, but God sees. Thomas Watson said that as Christians, we've now entered into a lifetime of repentance, of putting aside sin and putting on righteousness practically speaking. We no longer love our sin. We no longer live comfortably in our sin. We no longer are those who are giving in to our sin comfortably. We are those who are by the grace of God and in the power of the Spirit and by the guidance of God's Holy Word fighting against our sin. John Owen said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. That's true. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And so if you are diligently cultivating a heart of humility, it's going to show itself in that in relation to yourself, you will have a proper view of yourself. In relation to your sin, you will look to be holy, to be set apart from sin unto God. Third question this morning for us, and we're going to camp out here. Third question is this. Are you characterized by humble submission to God's Word? Are you characterized by humble submission to God's Word? This question really deals with our relationship now to God's Word. If the first question had to do with our relationship to ourselves, and the second question had to do with our relationship to our sin, this third question has to do with our relationship to God's Word, our understanding of God's Word, the place of God's Word in our lives. This is huge. Look at verse 2. But to this one I will look, to Him who is humble and contrite of spirit, and here it is, and who trembles at My Word. Hmm. Pretty straightforward, right? Pretty straightforward. But the question is, what does it mean exactly to tremble at God's Word? What does this mean? Well, let me tell you first of all, before we consider what trembling at God's Word means, right? it's important to recall what it does not mean. Here's what it does not mean. Ready? For the Christian, for the believer, submission to God's Word by means of trembling at God's Word does not refer to a slavish type of fear. That's not what it means for the believer. To the slavish type of fear. The type of fear that obeys for fear of punishment. For fear of God's eschatological final end-time judgment. That's not what it means. We understand that for those who have put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, Christ has absorbed our punishment on the cross. Amen? We sang about it this morning. And can it be? The glories of the glory of Christ should be a reminder daily for you as a believer. We are secure in Christ. It is finished. It is done. Jesus is enough. He's enough. What the Apostle John wrote in 1 John chapter 4, verse 17 now applies to us. 1 John 4.17 By this, love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment because as He is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love. 
This is the, speaking of God's love for us in Christ as believers, there's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Why? Because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. 1 John 4, 17 and 18. You hear that? God's perfect love in Christ is upon us. God's favor is upon you as a believer. No matter your weaknesses. No matter your lack of performance. You are secure in Him. And so trembling at God's Word is different for the believer than fearing God's punishment. Listen, as Christians, there is now a difference between God's fatherly discipline of you as His child and of His sort of uh, uh, punishment and the slavish fear that comes from his, the anticipation of His divine punishment one day when we face God at the great white throne judgment for those who are unbelievers. It's very different. There's a difference between God's fatherly discipline and this type of slavish fear of divine punishment as His enemies before we've, we came to Christ. And so as a Christian, God will give you a spiritual fatherly spanking often, doesn't He? And He's done that to me many times. He'll do that because He's our dad and He loves us. Hebrews chapter 12 speaks of this, right? Discipline from our Father may not always feel very pleasant, but it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness for those who submit to His fatherly discipline. God will do that uh, toward you as a believer, as His child, but He's not going to damn you to hell if you are in Christ. Here's the second thing that trembling is not. Trembling is also not speaking of a duty-driven type of fear. Not only of a slavish kind of fear, but a duty-driven type of fear. The type of fear that obeys out of mere obligation and duty, although there is an element of that, right? We don't always feel like doing the right thing. We don't always feel like obeying God. Should we obey God even so? Yes, and then we should repent of not feeling like doing it, right? We repent at the heart level. I should desire. It should be a loving obedience, a grateful obedience, a joyful obedience, a delightful obedience. So we should repent of having this duty-driven type of obedience, but that's not what trembling is speaking of, this duty-driven type of fear. We should obey. But now, God wants more. He wants hearts of gratitude and love and appreciation. 1 John chapter 5, and verse 3 says this, For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments, and His commandments, ready for this, are not burdensome. His commandments are not burdensome. That's 1 John 5.3. You hear that? Now God's commandments are our delight as Christians. Why? Because we know that our Father loves us. That He sent His Son Jesus into the world to die for our sins. And if He has done that for us, then every other gift, uh, James chapter 1, verse 17, every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Remember that verse? Every gift that God our Father gives us is a good gift. Therefore, His commandments are not burdensome. And so trembling is also not speaking of a duty-driven type of fear or a slavish type of fear. By the way, what I just said concerning you as a Christian does not apply to you if you're not a believer this morning. And I want you to think about this. What I just said concerning trembling applies only to you if you are a follower of Jesus. What trembling is not. Conversely, if you have not surrendered your life to Christ, the opposite is true. You have every reason to fear, my friend. 
If you are here this morning or watching and you are not in Christ, the least of your worries is what can happen to you here in this world. That's the least of your worries if you're not in Christ. If you have not surrendered your life to Jesus, you have one day the anticipation of standing at the great white throne judgment before God, before your Creator, and having to render an account for your rebellion against Him. And I want to remind you of that. You have every reason to fear. You have every reason to be scared. Because you will face God someday apart from Jesus, and you will be condemned. The Bible says that you are in a present enemy of God. The Bible says that apart from Jesus, that you are under God's present wrath. And that there's nothing that you can do to save yourself. That none of us are good. Every single one of us, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That doesn't just mean that you missed a target a little bit. It means that you shot the arrow the opposite direction. You are a sinner. And you deserve God's wrath and condemnation as each of us did in this room. You are an enemy of God. But I want you to know that there is hope. I want you to know that there's hope. There's the balm that comes from understanding who Jesus is and what He's done. There's hope in Jesus. There's hope in the One who qualifies alone to be Redeemer. And His name is Jesus Christ. He came, listen to me, He came to live the perfect, sinless life, the righteous life that you should live and that I should live, but we cannot do so. He came and scored a perfect 10 on our behalf. Perfect life. Righteous life. And then He went to the cross and died on the cross to pay for sins, absorbing God's punishment upon Himself on behalf of sinners. But then, death couldn't hold Him down because He rose from the dead, conquering sin and death on the third day. And He was victorious over the great tyrants of sin and of death. This is Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Did you hear that? Whosoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. There's no greater offer, my friend, that exists but the offer of free forgiveness and reconciliation and eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. There's no greater offer. Repent of your sins today. Put your trust in Christ and receive forgiveness. Be reconciled to God that you would go from enemy to child of God in Christ. That you would go from condemned to now blessed in Christ. That you would go from the sure reality of hell and condemnation someday to now heaven. Quality of time and and quantity of time. Forevermore in the presence of your Creator in joyful bliss. Amen? I pray that you would repent of your sins and put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ today. Well, I guess the question for us as Christians should be this then. What does it mean to tremble at God's Word? If it didn't mean those other things, what does it mean to tremble at God's Word as believers? At least five things, okay? Trembling means at least five things here. Trembling means that We cultivate a posture of reverence for the Word of God. That's number one. It means reverence for the Word of God. From our text, we've already seen how reverence is the appropriate response to the the majesty and the greatness of of God, right? And so if we revere God Himself, then we're going to honor and respect what He says. We're going to revere His Word. It follows, doesn't it? Listen to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28. 
which says, therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, he's writing to believers, let us have gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire, he says. He's writing to believers there. That far from security in Christ as a believer, you should be driven all the more to reverence and awe for your heavenly Father in the light of what it took to procure your forgiveness, right? And reconciliation. Reverence and awe. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 17. We're instructed, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. You hear that? Fear God. As believers, we're called to fear God. A different kind of fear. That's an instruction for us to cultivate a reverential awe for God. And surely, at the top of the list, what this involves is honoring His Word, right? Which comes from God Himself. Honor for God's Word is such a, an important thing. So much so that the Apostle Paul, in giving instructions to, the, to his young protege Timothy, writes in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13, until I come, Timothy, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Why does he command him to do that? Because God's Word is so important to the life of the church that it is to be read privately and publicly, collectively. It is to be taught and it is to be preached. Why? Because when we hold the Word in high regard, we are saying something about our view of God, right? High view or low view of God, low view of the Bible. High view of God, high view of Scripture and Holy Scripture. High view of God's Word. And here at Eastridge, one of the reasons why I came here is because you hold the Word of God in high regard. And that's only going to continue by the grace of God and by the power of the Spirit of God. Amen? That's only going to continue into the future. Pray for that. Pray that this would always be a lighthouse where the Word of God is preached faithfully where the Word of God is preached expositionally, and where the Word of God is applied and obeyed by God's people here. It's not just enough to hear it, right? We believe in expository preaching, but we also believe in expository application audience. Brethren, we need to be doers of the Word, not only hearers who are self-deceived. Pray that we would be that all the more as a church into the future. Trembling at God's Word means that we have a posture of reverence for God's Word. It was Martin Luther who confessed to those closest to him that often upon getting behind a pulpit that his knees would begin knocking together. Knocking together because when he stood up to preach because he had such a high level of degree of reverence for the Word of God. And he wanted to, he wanted to be faithful to deliver the Word of God with accuracy and precision and with passion and compellingly and for change. <laughs> Luther. Luther had a healthy, profound sense of reverential awe for God's Word because he knew who it came from. That it came from God's very mouth through His spokesmen, spokespeople. The story is told of a young preacher who was given an opportunity to preach by the senior minister of the church. And when it was time in the worship service for the sermon, the young preacher shot up in haste to the pulpit as quickly as he could with head erect, and chest thrown out proudly, expecting to wow the congregation with his great preaching. Well, later on, after he had finished his sermon, the young preacher slowly and humbly walked back down off of the pulpit after the sermon had completely bombed. It was his worst sermon that he had preached. 
Bewildered and disheartened, the young preacher asked his senior minister next to him, What happened? What happened? What went wrong? To which the wise minister answered him, Son, if you would have gone up to the pulpit the way you came down, you would have been able to come down the way you went up. That's good stuff, isn't it? What a lesson. What a lesson about humility. In other words, if you would have gone up to preach with a humble, dependent attitude, then God would have blessed and honored that preaching. But it was the opposite for this young guy, right? Makes me think of what Jesus said in Luke 18, 14. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Brethren, there are two types of people in this world. Those who humble themselves and those who are humbled by an almighty God. And one day, by the way, at the great white throne judgment, those who have not humbled themselves will be broken at the knees and they will have to bow to King Jesus. They will be humbled if they don't humble themselves in this lifetime. There are only two types of people. Which one would you rather be? Which one would you rather be? Commenting on the importance of reverencing the Word of God, J.C. Ryle wrote this, quote, Think about it, friend. Why wouldn't one who understands that the authority of God is behind His Word not be struck with awe and reverence upon hearing that Word preached? If that Word is the power of God unto salvation, if that Word is sharper than any two-edged sword, if that Word will not return unto God void, if that Word will someday judge us, should we not then be struck with awe and reverence as we hear it, read it, preach to us, and is preached to us, end quote? You get what he's saying? If we really believed, if we really believe that the Bible is the very Word of God, it would directly impact the way that we read it every morning when we wake up or at night or whenever you do your daily Bible reading, which every single one of us should be doing as believers. Whenever you read it, when you hear it, when you respond to it, you would have a sense of reverence and awe. If you really believe that this is God's Word, you would fight for that by God's grace. And respond in loving obedience to it. May I ask you this morning, brethren, do you possess a healthy posture of reverence for God's Word? Do you hold Scripture in high regard? You ask Pastor Kempis, how do I gauge my level of reverence for God's Word? Well, let me ask you, what's your heart like each day when you read it, when you open up your Bible, you crack into that, this beautiful book and you open it up What's your attitude like? Is it like the psalmist? Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law, Father. Open my eyes. Minister to my heart. We don't come to God's Word, you understand, to offer God something that He, he needs from us. You get that, right? We come to God's Word so that He would minister to us. He ministered to us. He pours the fresh water into the well of our hearts. So that then in response, and our affections are moved, we now respond in worship and adoration and service and obedience. What's your attitude like when you open up God's Word? Let me ask you this for corporate worship. What's your preparation like for Sunday worship look like? On Saturday nights, do you go to bed at a good time? So that you're not falling asleep uh, when Pastor Campus is preaching? Right? So that you get up at a good time on Sunday morning and be alert? Do you get up on Sunday and do everything you need to do to get here on time, to prepare your heart? 
Husbands, this is where you and I, as, especially if you're a young father, where you can jump in and actually help your wife out with this. All week long, generally speaking, your wife is taking care of the kiddos, young or older. There are burdens that your wife carries throughout the week as the, the, um, the matriarch of your home environment. And on Sunday mornings, you know what you can do for her? Why don't you be the one to get up and make breakfast? Moms, does that help you out when the dads make breakfast? That's huge, isn't it? All the screaming toddlers running around all over the place, right? How about you change the diapers on Sunday morning? How about you make sure that the kids line up their clothes on Saturday night to make sure that everybody's prepared for you to go to worship on Sunday morning, right? Because Satan doesn't want us to come and worship. Have you ever seen families the way that they come out of their cars on Sunday mornings? <laughs> I've been a pastor for many years. And I'll tell you right now, those are the worst times. Even for us it was. Man, it's like everybody's picking a bone to fight with everybody about. Things that weren't a big issue during the week become a massive issue on Sunday mornings. What's the matter with us? I'll tell you. Satan doesn't want us to come in and worship him, worship the Lord in spirit and in truth, right? Not him, the Lord in spirit and in truth. But what's, how do you prepare for Sunday morning worship? What's your attitude right now as you listen to God's Word? Is your attitude when you listen, this is a message from God to me. God is speaking to me. God has His finger on my chest right now and He is directly dealing and doing business with me right now. Is that your attitude toward God's Word? Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 says, For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from His sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of Him, God, with whom we have to do. The Word of God, brethren, it searches the soul, doesn't it? The Word of God, it, it grabs a hold of you and it doesn't let you go. This book is alive, isn't it? It's living and active. It's not a dead book of human tradition. God works powerfully and mightily through this message here. It's reveal, it reveals Him. Do you reverence God's Word? C.H. Spurgeon once said, Tremble. Tremble at the searching power of God's Word. Do you never come into this place and sit down in the pew and say, Lord, grant that Thy Word may search me and try me, that I may not be deceived. Certain people must always have sweets and comforts, but God's wise children do not wish for these in undue measure. Daily bread we ask for, not daily sugar. End quote. I like that. I like that. And so mark it. Trembling means that we cultivate a posture of reverence for God's Word. Second, second, trembling also means that we delight in God's Word. That we delight in God's Word. That we enjoy it. That we relish it. That we feast in God's Word, brethren. That we taste and see that the Lord is good. You know, during COVID, one of the horrible things that happened for many of us who got COVID, I don't know if this happened to you, is that you, you lost your taste. How many of you had that happen? Yeah, my poor wife lost it for months. Nothing worse than not being able to delight in the taste of food, right? You know, that's... Some of us here today in the spiritual realm, you have spiritual COVID. You are not tasting and delighting in the Word of God. You're just going through the motions. Just clocking in and out of your times in God's Word. You're not really fellowshipping and communing with, communing with Him. 
Are you tasting to see that the Lord is good? Are you savoring the Word of God? Psalm 34 verse 8 says that. Taste and see that the Lord is, is good. But you see, the problem with many of us is that we are not truly tasting. We're not delighting in God's Word, brethren. Consequently, we're, we're malnourished and spiritually famished as believers. We're not feasting on the Word of God. We're snacking. We're, we're dabbling here and there in, in the daily bread or the daily crumb or whatever. We're not savoring and digesting God's Word. Some of you aren't even in, in Bible studies in small groups where the Word of God is being wrestled with and believers are talking about the Word of God with one another and talking about the implications and application from God's Word. You think that Sunday morning is sufficient for you and it isn't. I'm just telling you right now. I'm just telling you. 45 minutes of hearing, to, of hearing a, a ranting Mexican preacher right, is not going to be sufficient as far as your dieting of God's Word. You need to be getting into the Word every single day. You need to be in a small group. You need to be meeting with others informally, inviting people into your home and going to people's home and wrestling you men with other men and ladies, spending time with other women, especially those who are older than you and more mature than you. Being discipled and speaking the truth in love to one another. It's more than just Sunday morning, though Sunday morning is absolutely the main event and you better be here, right? To worship with your brethren. Are you savoring and delighting in the Word of God? We need to be like the prophet Jeremiah, brethren. Remember the weeping prophet? When he says in Jeremiah 15, 16, your words, God, your words were found and I ate them. Mmm, yummy. Your words were found and I ate them and your words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart. In Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 1, God says to His prophet Ezekiel, Son of man, eat what you find. Eat this scroll, speaking of God's Word, and speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and He fed me this scroll. He said to me, Son of man, feed your stomach and fill your body with the scroll which I'm giving you. Then I ate it and it was sweet as honey to my mouth. I love that passage right there. That sends a message to us, doesn't it? About the value and the savoring of God's Word and the need to delight in the Word of God. The psalmist says exuberantly in Psalm 119, verse 103, how sweet are your words to my taste. Yes, sweeter than honey, to my mouth. Psalm 19, verse 10 speaks of God's Word as being more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Boy, the Word of God is tasty, brethren. Isn't it? It's delightful. Now let me ask you as you do your Bible reading, are you delighting in it? Because it's not just enough to read it. Are you memorizing it? Are you meditating upon it? Are you relishing in what you're reading? Are you fellowshipping with, a, with the triune God of the universe, right? The Word of God reveals the, the person of God. The triune person of God. The God of the Bible. And His Son, Jesus Christ, and the power of the Spirit. Are you communing with, communing with Him? And might I add, those who delight in God's Word, live it. Are you applying it? Are you appropriating it to your life? You say, but Pastor Kempis, what if I don't desire it? What if I don't delight in the Word like I should? Well, all of us can identify, amen? To some extent or another, including your pastor. I can as well. I don't always feel like reading the Word, brethren. I don't always feel like doing that. And those are the moments when I have to repent for various reasons, right? I'm sure you can identify. So there could be a number of reasons why you don't desire 
the word one, maybe you're partaking of too much junk food in your life. Right? What do you you mean by that? You're partaking of other things that are taking away your appetite for God's Word. Some of us use the excuse, the sinful excuse, that we don't have time to read God's Word. That we don't have time to memorize God's Word. But you sure have a lot of time to be on your iPhone all day long. We watch you on social media, right? Is the iPhone the problem, by the way? No. Our hearts are the problem. These things are wonderful and we can leverage them for so many good things. It's our, anything that our, our sinful hands get, the, get a hold of become, can be used for evil purposes, right? So the iPhone is not the problem. Social media is not the problem. Be careful with that. Don't be legalistic. Going beyond what stands written. It's our hearts that are the problem. And so many of us make the excuse that we don't have time to delight in God's Word, and yet we're always on social media. You're always on your iPhones. We have a whole generation of kids growing up in homes where the one thing that they will remember more than anything else is the top of their parents' heads. Looking down on their iPhones instead of engaging them and training their children. Ignoring them. Be careful with that, parents. Be careful with that. And each of us have erred to some extent or another in that regard, haven't we? Haven't we? Secondly, not only too much, spirit, too much junk food in your life, but maybe you're coddling known unrepentant sin in your life. That's a second reason why maybe you don't delight in God's Word. You don't have a hunger for God's Word. Listen to me. Secret, unconfessed sin will eliminate, will quench your spiritual appetite for God's Word. That's why 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1 instructs us this way. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and all hypocrisy, implied all envy and all slanders. There, there's the condition right there for having an appetite for the Word of God. right? Put aside like dirty clothing. Put aside these sins. And if He's commanding us to do that, that means that we have the power as believers to do it. Right? God doesn't command us to do anything that He hasn't given us the grace and the power of the Spirit to be able to accomplish. That's the condition. And then He says, like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the Word. So that by it, you may grow in respect to salvation. Deal with your sin. If you want hunger for the Word of God, deal swiftly and definitively with your sin. Confess it to God and to others who you love and trust and who love you and you know they are for you. Deal with it. And then perhaps you will have hunger for the Word of God. The pathway, brethren, the pathway to Christ-exalting change is humble repentance. The pathway to humble, to Christ-exalting change is humble repentance in your life, even as a believer. Third, here's another spiritual appetite deflator. It's when we live in a state of bitterness toward other people. If you live in a state of ongoing, broken, unreconciled relationships, be be they in your home, in the church, or other, remember what Jesus said, right? Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder, you shall not, or you shall not commit murder, you shall not um, do many things. He says, I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court, and whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the supreme court, and whoever says, says to his brother, you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. Sobering words, right? Sobering words. Because we oftentimes, brethren, 
draw this false dichotomy between our vertical relationship with God as believers and how we treat other people in our lives. But God cares about how we treat one another. Don't ever fool yourself into thinking that you can exist uh, continually in an unrepentant way with strained relationships in your life, unreconciled with certain believers, duking it out with your spouse, duking it out with your kids, duking it out with your parents, or with other brethren, and you're going to have a thriving vertical relationship with God. You're fooling yourself. That's a contradiction. That's inconsistent with Scripture. Be a go-getter and initiate reconciliation. Make things right and perhaps your hunger for God's Word will increase. Remember Romans 12, 18? As far as it depends on, on you, be at peace with all men. Remember that? Romans 12, 18. Third, trembling means that we obey God's Word. Trembling means that we obey God's Word. Obedience really completes the circle of a right response to the Word of God, right? Obeying God's Word. I'm not going to expand on this too much, as we've already talked about it a little bit. But if you're cultivating humility, brethren, then it's going to show itself in your submission to the Word of God by means of obeying the Word of God. I've been told in the past, as a minister of the Gospel, by people in counseling or whatever, or in evangelism, you know, hey, all I know is that I love Jesus. That's all I know. In other words, get off my back. Right? I love Jesus. Get off my back. Right? Telling us to go do things is legalism. I've been told that many times. You know what my answer then is to them? What did Jesus say in John 14, 15? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Keep there is, a, is equivalent to obeying, to doing what God says. Right? Lots of people talking a lot about loving Jesus, but not living what Jesus told us to live out. Not following after Jesus. John 14, 23. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come and make our abode with him. Couldn't it be more crystal clear, right? If you are a follower of Jesus and you say you love Jesus, you will do what Jesus says. Jesus is boss, brethren. Jesus is boss. He is Lord. He is boss. Trembling, fourthly, means trusting in God's Word. Trembling means trusting in God's Word. In other words, you take God at His Word. You rest and you rely upon His sure promises. That If God's Word says, I will never leave you nor forsake you, guess what? He's going to come through for you, isn't He? If He says that I'm going to provide for you, I'm going to protect you, then He really means it. Bank on it. Live out the implications of that wonderful reality. If trembling means something, it's that we rely upon God's Word. We take God for what He says and we obey it and we respond to it. Proverbs 3.5 Trust in the Lord with all your heart. and Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Psalm 37 verse 5 Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in Him and He will do it. See, trust. Trembling means that we trust in God's Word. To submit to God's Word means that we rely upon the Word of God. Fifth, fifth and finally, trembling means that we embrace God's Word in Christ. That we embrace God's Word in Christ. And this one needs to be said. Because there are people in our culture, brethren, who say that they like the Bible 
that they believe in God, they believe in the Bible, that it's a nice book, but they're altogether either indifferent to Christ or they reject Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, as King. They have never bowed the knee to Jesus. But if you're truly a trembler, if you're one who is submitted to the Word of God, then you will embrace the one to whom the, the Word ultimately points to, right? The Word made flesh, His name is Jesus. Amen? And thus to sincerely tremble and to sincerely submit to God's Word is to repent of your sins. And that's not just some empty false profession. That's not speaking of some intellectual assent to some set of facts. No. Remember James 2.19 warns us about this, that the demons also believe and shudder, it says. The demons also have this false sense of understanding the facts, but they don't repent. They don't turn from their sin, right? And so repentance is a humble turning from your sin, acknowledging it as an offense against a holy and just God, pleading for His grace and mercy upon you, a sinner. To sincerely tremble, brethren, at God's Word is to transfer trust from yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ alone. That He is your dependence. He is the source of your joy. He is the basis of your security. You must see your sin if you are to savor the one and only Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Would you say today in the quietness of your heart, brother, sister, would you say before the Lord that you are characterized by submission to Christ and to His Word? That really your question for major decision-making in your life, ministry in the church, decision-making about the future is, well, what does God's Word say? What does God want me to do? What are the principles that inform this particular decision that I'm about to make? Is that what you ask yourself? Or is it, well, that's going to be better for my possessions. That's going to be better property for me. That's going to be a better situation for me for whatever worldly reason. Or is it the kingdom of God, right, and, His, and God's riches? Those are the things that are driving me and motivating my decision-making. Are you characterized by submission to the Word of God? Right? Humble people say with John the Baptist, He, Christ, must increase, and I must what? Decrease decrease. Well, next week, we're going to take a little break. I want you to know and do a special Father's Day message, so make sure that you guys are here for that. And then we'll continue our series two weeks from today on the right purpose for why, why we are here. We've talked about the right perspective. We're going to talk about the right purpose for why here we are here, and I hope that it will be an encouragement to you. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. How desperately we need people today our gracious Father, who tremble at Your Word, who take Your Word seriously. We need believers, a new generation of Christians who are resolved to, Father, be used for the exaltation of Your Son all the more. Help us to be sensitive to Your Word and to be doers of Your Word, submitted to everything that Jesus our Lord has to say to us. In Jesus' name, amen.